Hello, my name is David Holt. In the peripatetic world of the freelance jobbing actor, like me, it's rare to form enduring friendships. It's just the nature of the lives we lead, hopping from one job to the next, bonding quickly with other cast members, and then moving on just as quickly once the engagement is over, and not seeing them again for months, years, if ever. It's fine. We're used to it. It's part of the job. However, once in a while you meet someone with whom you really click, and they become a close friend. And this is what happened to me way back in the mid-1990s at the BBC Radio Drama Department in London, when I first met and worked with Stephen Critchlow, or Critch, as his friends know him. A shared sense of the absurd, a deep appreciation of the great legacy of British actors, a love of corny old TV and film comedies, and a mutually wicked sense of humour has made us lifelong friends. Critch is one of those friends with whom I can chew the fat, have a moan, share problems and successes, but above all, laugh, usually to the point of hysteria. His razor-sharp wit, his silly voices, his great lust for life and indefatigable spirit are what define him. He's one of those actors who, whilst perhaps not being a household name, is always working, and whom everyone knows and loves. He is a force of nature. So imagine my shock when I heard the news that in the first week of rehearsal for a new stage play, Critch had been literally felled by a stroke and rushed into hospital. It left me stunned. Not Critch, surely. This must be a mistake. Like Captain Scarlet himself, Critch is indestructible. It must be somebody else. Well, unfortunately, it was true, and I was shocked beyond belief. The full story of his stroke, his emergency treatment, his hospitalisation, his recovery, his return home, and the long, slow road to rehabilitation are best told in his own words. The telling of this story is Stephen's way of saying thank you to all the amazing NHS staff who treated him every step of the way. He also wants to use this opportunity to raise money for the NHS Charities Together Fund towards the extraordinary work the NHS does, and details of how you can help, if you'd like to, will be given at the end. But first, to tell his story, here's Stephen. On Wednesday, January the 8th, I had a stroke. I was in rehearsal at the Theatre Royal Northampton for a play based on a novel by Hans Fallada called Alone in Berlin. A dark piece about a couple's fight against the Nazis. I was looking forward to it. There was a great cast and I'd wanted to work with the director, James Dacre, for a long time. It was the first week of rehearsal and we were doing table work. This is a recent development from the Katie Mitchell School of Rehearsing. The actors sit round a table with the director and discuss every scene, diligently noting each new element and describing how this moves the scene forward. Most actors will admit, privately, that they loathe this process. What they want to do is to get up, block the scene and find out when they can sit down again. On that Wednesday, at about an hour after lunch, we were seated at the table, most of us in our own private hell, and I began to feel dizzy, and my right arm tingled. 
Now, what I should have done at this point was turn to the stage manager who happened to be next to me and say, I think I'm having a stroke. Please call an ambulance. But I didn't. Anyone who is self-employed might experience a twinge of empathy with me. I didn't want people to think I wasn't well enough to do the job, but also, I didn't feel that bad. The dizziness and the tingling sensation subsided. One scene left to read and discuss before the rehearsal ended. A short scene. Then back to London for a radio job on Thursday and Friday. Dizziness again. The tingling again. Once again they subsided. I tried to regulate my breathing, tried not to panic. We had a break. I went to the toilet and sat down. I felt all right. I told myself, just this one short scene and then I'm done. I returned to the rehearsal room, we read the scene, we discussed it, we finished. The sensations came back. I sat in my chair, feeling disorientated. My right arm was flopping by my side. I walked slowly to the green room, went to pick up my bag, and I fell over. Fellow actor Joseph Marcel tried to pick me up, but I'm six foot four, I'm heavy. So there I lay, sweating profusely. Sarah, the company manager, called an ambulance. I heard her answering questions. Yes, the right side of his face has fallen. Yes, he can move his left arm, but he has difficulty raising the other one. Sarah then phoned Caroline, my wife, and waited with me until the ambulance came. Sarah, I have to say, was brilliant throughout the whole business. The ambulance arrived after about half an hour, and a couple of young paramedics did a few cognitive tests to see if my brain had been damaged. The tests suggested that it hadn't. But I was having difficulty speaking. The road from my brain to my mouth was blocked. They gave me medication, lifted me onto the stretcher, it took some effort, and strapped me in. As they wheeled me through the foyer, I shouted to bemused members of the public, It was the fish! Don't have the fish! Clearly, I'd not yet realised the gravity of the situation. With Sarah in tow, we set off. I heard a siren, very loud. It wouldn't stop. Whatever's behind us, I said. We ought to let it go past. It's us, said Sarah. We're making all the noise. <laughs> it's just like Holby City, isn't it? I seized the opportunity, following a tradition amongst actors, to inform her that I had appeared in an episode of Holby City. A few years ago, admittedly. We were at Northampton General in no time. The paramedics parked me in A&E, and two nurses came to see me. Sarah explained to them what had happened. They did some more cognitive tests, took a CAT scan of my brain, and, after contacting a doctor via Skype, they sent him the results of the scan. The doctor said that from what he could tell, I'd experienced a mini-stroke, and there was no sign of anything awry. Sarah and I breathed a sigh of relief. No need to find a replacement for me. My blood pressure, a volcanic 200 over something, was a contributing factor quite clearly. So I was to be kept in overnight, and they'd try to bring the blood pressure down. 
This would mean I'd lose the audio work that was booked to start on Thursday, but stroke sufferers, I tell myself, can't have everything. I said goodbye to Sarah after declaring adequately, I hope, how grateful I was to her, and then I was taken up to Eleanor Ward. Apparently, Northampton has one of the best stroke units in Britain. So if I planned on having a stroke, this was the place to be. It was now dark. I'd lost all conception of time. Nurses on the ward got me into bed, slowly, and I looked around. On the bed to my left lay a grey-haired man who was being fed via his nose by a series of drips. The sides of his head had been shaved, and there was a great deal of scarring on the bald patches. The skin below his eyes looked like molten wax. This poor soul, I learned later, had been in an induced coma for three weeks. He'd undergone the operation, had been brought out of this limbo during the evening of my arrival, and was now muttering to himself in a light, faraway voice that seemed to come from deep inside him. God knows where he'd been for those three weeks, but he wasn't back yet. Across from him was an old man who was utterly convinced that he wasn't in a hospital. Every time, with great patience, the nurses told him to return to bed, he'd accuse them of keeping him under false pretenses. As if this weren't enough, he thought that the man across from him was his wife, and he'd repeatedly instruct him, or her, to phone Barry and ask him to get them both out of there. This cycle went on for several hours. I tried to get out of bed to go to the toilet. My legs gave way and I crashed back against the wall. Two nurses rushed over and told me off. You can't, I was advised, do the things you used to do. And now, at last, the seriousness of the situation was brought home to me. And I wept quietly, falling in and out of sleep. The machines above the beds pinged and played little tunes. I was woken every three hours to have my blood pressure checked. It remained ridiculously high, but I was advised that it shouldn't be reduced too quickly. Experts at a recent seminar, a knowledgeable nurse informed me, had agreed that this could have a detrimental effect. Among the staff on the ward was a Muslim who gave me a cardboard bottle to pee in and cleaned me up afterwards and a nurse, Polish by birth, who popped a chocolate in my mouth from time to time. All the staff had one thing in common. They worked hard, and they had a cheery professionalism which made me acutely embarrassed about my own, arguably self-indulgent occupation. I never asked, why me? I knew why. I was only 53, but I was a serious social drinker and smoker. I had a rubbish diet. I was quite overweight and I'd been that way for a long time. It was all my fault. I was told that athletes and younger people than I was had experienced strokes, but that didn't change how I felt. I knew that if I hadn't behaved like Nero on his stag night for nearly 40 years, I wouldn't have been where I was. Also, I'd let my wife and daughter down. If I failed to make a recovery in quick time, I'd be something of an imposition. What if I never recovered at all? As I drifted off to sleep, I tried to cheer myself up with a line by John Bunyan. 
He that is down may fear no fall. I followed this with, There's nothing so bad that it couldn't be worse. But it was about to be. At eight o'clock all the lights flickered on and the ward returned to life. People came around with tea and coffee and toast and cereal. I wasn't hungry. My voice sounded like Alfred Hitchcock with concussion, and my mouth felt like it wasn't mine. Operating it was like getting an old truck out of a muddy ditch. But what worried me was my right arm. It was now a dead weight. Before I'd finally fallen asleep last night, I could move it, with some effort. Now, nothing. The nurse who came to check on me looked concerned when I told her. The doctor, I was informed, would be doing his rounds soon. He'd see me in about an hour. The man on my left resumed his stream of consciousness. He repeatedly tried to remove his drips from his nose, so the nurses put his hands in what looked like Mickey Mouse's gloves to make the task more difficult. The doctor arrived and gave me a brief check-up. He advised me that in 15% of stroke cases the condition gets worse. I was one of the 15%. Bad luck, he said, and somehow the words sounded genuinely sympathetic. He wanted to do an MRI scan on my brain. He moved on. A visitor, Sarah bearing red grapes. I gave her my news. She looked ashen. She'd have to report back to the theatre and the process of finding my replacement would begin. While I was lying in bed, events unfolded around me. Caroline had already called my agent and my agent had called the audio production company and explained the situation and the company had redistributed the parts. No chance, of course, that what had happened could be kept a secret. Social media wouldn't allow it. By midday, even Eskimos had discovered that I'd had a stroke. Friends, mates from productions recent and long ago, they sent me text messages wishing me well, messages of kindness and humour. I appreciated each one of them. I can't tell you how much. Caroline arrived with pyjamas, toiletries and more red grapes. She was kind and she was upset and underneath I was certain she was boiling with anger. She knew why I'd ended up in this place. She'd spent years trying to keep me away from it. We cried together. After the tears, she began listing in her wonderfully practical way the various things that she needed to do for me. Cancel my accommodation for the tour. Get various items that were required for my stay. Her brother had had a stroke some time ago, and she knew it took time to recover. All my promises of future good behaviour were met with a faint, sceptical smile. I couldn't blame her. I didn't eat anything that day, or the next. Comerman's family came to visit him. When he asked them to wheel him outside for a cigarette, I marvelled at the human capacity for self-destruction. Here was a man on the verge of death, who had stepped back from the abyss and wanted a fag while he enjoyed the view. Later that day, like a bolt from the blue, my old friend Dave came to see me. My name is David Sargent, and I've known Stephen Critchlow for 35 years. 
We became friends when we started Mountview Theatre School together in October 1985. We would be walking to different classes in Crouch End in North London, and he would see me and start shouting Sylvester Stallone impressions at me across the street. This would reduce me to hysterics. Nothing's really changed. I was best man at his wedding to Caroline on September the 7th, 1996, and we've worked and laughed our way through nearly four decades together. So, when I received a phone call late one evening from Caroline to inform me that Critch had had a stroke, I was somewhat taken aback. That was definitely not part of the script. Critch is the person who makes light of everything. Critch is the person who makes you see the funny side. I knew immediately that I wanted to go and see him in hospital, and so the following day, with mounting trepidation, I set off to Northampton. I wasn't sure what I would find when I got there, and once there, how I should approach this strange situation. Well, he wasn't expecting to see me, so my first hope was that I wouldn't induce another stroke as I appeared through the curtain. Should I appear from above on a rope? burst into the ward juggling and telling jokes, or just quietly appear by his side. I opted for the latter. Thankfully, the critch that I found was better than my overactive imagination had suggested. Dishevelled, yes. Somewhat bewildered, probably. And, of course, very tired. Later, he would say that we missed the opportunity to do a Doctor Who gag, with me outside the curtains saying, Nurse! According to these notes, this patient has two hearts. However, I had to explain that while this may have been a great joke, I would never have forgiven myself if I'd done it, pulled back the curtains with a flourish, and found a sobbing blob rocking backwards and forwards in a fetal position. Luckily, I didn't. What I did find, however, was someone manically reciting tongue twisters at the whole ward as though his life depended on it. I left that hospital certain that Critch would recover fully and that life would return to normal. If this was a shot across the bows, then there is everything to play for. And anyway, who doesn't benefit from re-evaluating their life now and again? Sarah came again, along with James, the director. He brought red grapes and told me that everyone in the cast sent their love. I joked that if he needed evidence that table work wasn't good for you, here it was. The right side of my face had begun to tingle, from above the eye to below the mouth. I noticed that James was studying it, probably storing the image away for a future play about stroke victims. I had my first taste of hospital food, a very nice chilli con carne, but the rice was difficult to eat with one hand and a drooping lip. I felt dizzy every now and then, as if the spirit level in my body was out of kilter. When I had a quiet moment in between blood pressure checks and cognitive assessments, I worked on my dead hand, wrapping it around the bar on the side of the bed and trying as hard as I could to make my thumb move. On the third day, it did. Only a twitch, but it moved. One effect of a stroke is that emotions are all over the place. I'd cry at hearing a weather forecast. So when my thumb started to move, I broke down. To anyone else, this thumb training of mine was comparable to the slowest 
longest, most boring Rocky montage imaginable. But to me, the thumb twitch meant that the arm wasn't a complete write-off. There was hope. Coma Man was removed to rehabilitation. Screens were placed around my bed. The ward became unisex. I heard a woman being brought in, and a repeated pleading call, Nurse, please help me. Please help me. The poor woman was obviously scared out of her wits. I felt very sorry for her, but all the same I was grateful for the screens. The nurses, ever attentive, repeatedly asked the woman to stop flashing your bits. A couple of young physiotherapists came, and after assessing me they took me for a very wobbly walk down the ward. They were of average height, and I towered over them like Frankenstein's monster staggering from the operating table. If someone had shown me a flaming torch, I'd have growled at it. We reached the end of the ward, and I encountered some patients I hadn't seen before. Told them I was doing strictly on Friday. Laughter. Then a shock. I came upon a mirror set into the wall. I stared at the unshaven man with half his face lower than the other. The tired, scared eyes. The dead weight of an arm that was pulling his shoulder down. I was in worse shape than I thought. One of my symptoms was stroke fatigue. By no means uncommon, it makes the sufferer so weary that 3pm rapidly turns into 3am and the only thing for it is to stay dormant until it passes. I was doing this when Sarah came to visit me again with a big get-well card from the cast. Accompanying her were the two producers of the show, who very kindly brought me a bag of chocolate heroes and, yes, some red grapes. They joked that they were only here to avoid lots of admin work, and added that I looked a lot better than they'd feared. I suspected the latter comment to be flannel, but it was well-meaning. On my own again, I noticed a new occupant of the bed on my left. A small old man lay there, his face a frozen mask of agony, eyes clamped tight shut, mouth trapped in a silent scream. He'd been turned to stone by pain. I'd never seen anyone so still. A nurse checked on him occasionally, and at last, very slowly, he stirred and was fed some soup. Later, it may have been early evening, his wife and son-in-law paid him a visit. I offered them some grapes from my burgeoning vineyard, and we got talking. I was told that the man was ninety-five, an ex-landscape gardener. His son-in-law, I learned, had wanted to be a blacksmith or build dry stone walls or work with shire horses. But there were no training opportunities, so he built fitted kitchens instead. During the conversation, I could see that the man's wife was becoming tearful. She was ten years younger than her husband, and his condition must have shocked her and made her wonder what the rest of her life had in store. Admittedly, he might improve, but at present, the old man barely knew where he was. As the wife left, I gave her a chocolate hero and told her to be strong. I was like some life coach from breakfast television. The truth is, before the stroke, I'd been in a cosy little bubble of make-believe. But here was the real thing. My infirmity made me feel oddly liberated, 
and my heightened emotional state gave me the confidence to chat to strangers. I felt we were united by events, and took every opportunity to make small talk with staff, patients and visitors. I also found the practice helped me to learn how to operate my curiously alien mouth, but many of the staff, I'm sure, must have found my intrusions annoying. They wanted to get on with their jobs, and I was behaving like a member of the royal family on a visit. Are you from round these parts? Uh, have you worked here long? I was wheeled down for an MRI scan. I was asked if I had any piercings or metal in me, and they placed a thick plastic sheet under me and slid me off the stretcher. My head was tightly fixed into position, and I went into the machine. While the local radio station was piped in just in case I got bored, the machine took several pictures of my brain. The experience was mildly claustrophobic and reminded me of the time I'd had a prosthetic mask of my face made for an episode of Red Dwarf. Back in the ward, a visit from the speech therapist. My voice, I told her, was my living, so I wanted to practice as hard as I could. The sloshy, sibilant S sound needed a lot of work, and the therapist gave me appropriate exercises, such as, amid the mists of smoking frosts, with stoutest wrists and loudest boasts, he thrusts his wrists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. Well, you try it. I was both scared and intrigued to know the results of the scan, but the only thing I had to do was get better. Caroline had contacted my agents, both of whom were friends I'd known for over twenty years. They'd said I must take as long as necessary. I couldn't look for work. The daily routine continued. Blood pressure was checked every three hours. It was dropping and was nothing compared to what it was when I arrived, but it was still perilously high. I continued to do my training. Though there was some feeling in the arm, all I could achieve was a vague movement of the thumb and index finger. Thanks to the tongue twisters, my voice was slowly improving, but I now sounded like a cross between Roy Hattersley and Droopy. A different doctor came around every morning with a different group of students. The outlook, it appeared, was positive. I was relatively young and could have good return, as one of the doctors put it. Nurses would ask me when my birthday was. Cognitive testing, of course. But it was repeated so often that I began to wonder if they were planning some event towards the end of November. Two physios came and took me for a little walk, supporting me at the elbow. The next day the little walk became a little longer. I walked stiffly and cautiously, like Bambi on the frozen lake, and I seemed unable to judge distances on my right side, with the result that I'd bang my arm and shoulder on the door frames. On the third outing it was agreed between the three of us that I'd have a stab at walking unaided. I was surprised how nervous this made me feel. I remembered how I'd learned to ride a bike, how my father would take me to a quiet stretch of track and hold the back of the saddle, walking with me while I wobbled along. I'd find my balance and, gaining confidence, gain speed. 
and then, one day, he let go. Such pride and excitement knowing that I was cycling unaided. Could I walk unaided? After we'd gone a few yards, one of the physios let go of my elbow. I walked on. The other physio let go. I walked on. The balance was okay. The right foot dropped slightly, but the main thing was both legs were functioning. By this time I could eat my meals while seated on a chair at the side of the bed. Being out of bed was a treat. I was free from the strange rubber leggings which were attached to a machine, sending electrical impulses through my legs and massaging them in order to prevent thrombosis. But after an hour and a half, I'd feel something that was a little like seasickness and have to slither back into bed. The results of the MRI scan were about to be made known. I'd expected a brief statement of some sort, some accompanying leaflet, pamphlet, or perhaps a sort of ladybird book of strokes. Peter has a stroke. Jane brings him grapes. But a doctor and a gaggle of students appeared. I can't think what a collective noun for medical students is. Maybe a concern. The doctor explained that when a stroke happens, part of the brain loses its blood supply. This damages the brain. There are two types of stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic. An ischemic stroke is caused by a blood clot. A hemorrhagic stroke is caused by bleeding. I'd had the former. Thank God. The man with the shaved head and the scars, he'd suffered a bleed, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. The effects of a stroke depend on two things, where in your brain the stroke occurs and how much the stroke has damaged it. Luckily, my cognitive functions were normal, if a little slow. With rehabilitation, there could be good return. The brain, dear listener, is a wonderful thing. After a stroke, it starts rewiring itself, but it needs directing and pushing. An analogy was used. Imagine an overgrown garden. The old path has gone. I had to start trampling down a new one. How? Repetition. <laughs> I smiled at this. What is the actor's life but repetition? The endless learning of new lines and moves by repeating them over and over. At Christmas I'd started learning my lines for Alone in Berlin. I was due to play a really hateful character, a vile, Nazi-loving anti-Semite. I normally mutter my lines under my breath when learning them, and last Christmas any unsuspecting visitor to Beckenham Park would have been disturbed to come across a large figure walking along with his ancient black Labrador, muttering, Filthy Jewish bitch! and Heil Hitler! Hardly tidings of comfort and joy. I'm Chris Pavlo. I first met Stephen Critchlow, I've never called him Stephen before, he's Critch, and he always will be, in 1995 at the BBC Radio Drama Company workshop. An excruciating day with half a dozen actors, desperate to prove they had what it took to form part of that prestigious group. Critch was like the kid at school who always put his hand up first and knew all the answers. He was throwing in witty cultural references, quotes ranging from... Jacobean dramas to rare 60s radio comedies, clearly aimed at impressing the BBC directors running the show. His acting pieces were good too. The bastard. 
a year later, we were both invited to join the company. It became clear to me fairly soon that Critch was possibly the sharpest, funniest, warmest person and certainly one of the most gifted actors I'd ever worked with. We became firm friends and remain so to this day, and I still get a rush of delight when I see his name on the script of a production I'm about to work on, knowing that the production itself will be elevated by his presence, but also because the green room banter will be exceptional. News of his stroke was numbing. The usual cliches of how it pulls into focus the fragility of life and how we're not as young as we used to be and needed to take care of ourselves, but from a purely selfish point of view, I wasn't ready to lose such a good friend and wondered if Critch would ever be the same. Having visited him recently, I'm glad to say, apart from having an arm that doesn't do quite what it's told yet, he's still spouting the same old obscure quotes and beating everyone to the funniest improvised riposte, as you were. There was talk of moving me nearer home. Lewisham University Hospital was mentioned. It was certainly the nearest. My daughter Phoebe was born there nearly 20 years ago. No bed was available yet, but when there was, I'd be moving on. The idea of leaving Northampton made me a little uneasy. I felt safe here, settled. By talking to some of the staff, I got to know them a little. There was Andy, a nice, well-spoken young man who shaved me and seemed to have time to talk. He was a Christian and practised a German martial art that involved sticks. There was Michelle, whose husband had had a small part in Kinky Boots, which was filmed in the Northampton factory where he worked. My ego was returning to normal. I felt smug when a nurse recognised me from a production of The Remains of the Day I'd done in Northampton last year. Despite the odd wobble, my mood remained buoyant. Every day, people asked me how I felt, and I'd say I felt OK. Because I did. I didn't feel depressed. I knew what had happened. I knew what I had to do. I thank God for my shallowness. I'd been in Northampton General Hospital, Eleanor Acute Stroke Ward, for six days when the news came. There was a bed free at Lewisham and an ambulance from somewhere near Norwich would come and take me. It arrived after lunch. People gathered to say goodbye. They were very kind. Recovery, I knew, wasn't a foregone conclusion on any level. But they said I'd be all right, and their words meant an enormous amount to me. I told the ward sister that she should come round to my house and have her arm squeezed every three hours, see how she liked it. The rain was coming down in stair-rods as they loaded me into the back of the ambulance and set off, hurtling down the M1. The young man who was riding shotgun to make sure I didn't fly out of the back, he was constantly texting to try and get childcare for his young son. This job had come out of the blue. The bed at Lewisham had suddenly become available, and this was the only free ambulance between Northampton and Norwich. I did my usual impression of a minor royal and we chatted. He wanted to know why I was trading my cosy life at Northampton General for the less predictable delights of Lewisham. After I'd explained, he went into cab driver mode and told me that he'd picked Stephen Fry up for his prostate operation. A nice man, he said, and a very nice house. If ever I met Stephen Fry, I said, I'd use that as a conversation opener. We made good time. 
I was taken up to an ensuite room in Beach Ward. A swab was placed into every orifice to check that I hadn't brought anything nasty with me. I was weighed, and my blood pressure was taken. It was now 158 over something. Not ideal, but out of the danger zone. Inevitably, I was asked if I knew my date of birth. Caroline came with some clothes and some very welcome words of comfort. The next two days were geared towards assessing me to find out if I could survive in the wild. Though it might be thought a privilege to have one's own room, I felt lonely. I missed the buzz and banter of a busy ward. It must sound ungrateful. Forgive me. But after a week in a place that was bursting at the seams with life and purpose, the silence was deafening. And though nurses came in from time to time, it wasn't the same. A visit from Angie, a young physiotherapist from New Zealand. She checked my condition, accompanied me on a brief walk down the corridors. I was improving but still wobbly, and then booked me in for an appointment in the gym. The question was, how would I cope when I went home? Could I walk upstairs? Could I make a cup of tea? Would I need a carer? I didn't want to use a walking stick, I knew that much, and I certainly didn't want Caroline to be required to wash me or dress me or take me to the toilet, not if I could help it. A therapist came and gave me the mother of all cognitive tests. Names, dates, what's wrong with these sentences? I now hold the University Hospital Lewisham Award for mentioning the most animals in under a minute. I can't pretend I'm not smug about it, and I would have liked a certificate or even a badge. Dr Patel visited and said that I was unusually young to have suffered a stroke. I had seen younger stroke victims in Ellen Award, but not many, it's true. Again, I felt shame-faced about the selfish way I'd lived my life. My heart was checked. Thankfully, it was OK. A pharmacist called Louise came and told me about the medication I'd be on for the rest of my life. Pay attention. Clopidogrel, commonly used in a blocked pipe stroke as a blood thinner. Atovastatin, to lower cholesterol and prevent further strokes and heart disease. Amlodipine, for stroke sufferers with high blood pressure. And Ramipril, also used in cases of high blood pressure. One of those, I'm sure, was a character in a mid-70s Doctor Who adventure. The next day I made a cup of tea with one hand and slowly climbed up and down a short set of steps in the gym. I was repeatedly asked how many steps there were to my front door and up to my bedroom. I was deemed fit to return home and enter the next and longest stage of my rehabilitation. I was told that I'd be assigned a physiotherapist help strength, mobility, balance and stamina. I never had much of any of those before the stroke, as well as an occupational therapist to help me regain independence by relearning skills for everyday life, and a speech therapist. I didn't need a psychiatrist as I was still annoyingly cheery. The provision of therapy at home doesn't happen in every area, 
It's very much a postcode lottery. I was fortunate. One incident on my last day added a sour note to my stay at Lewisham. Two pillows had fallen from my bed and lay on the floor, despite my efforts to retrieve them. A woman came in to give me breakfast, and I asked her if she could pass me the pillows. I tried to pick them up, I said, but failed. She said it wasn't her job. The pillows were two feet away from her. I asked her again and again. She fled, saying she would get someone. No one came. At midday I was wheeled down to the departure lounge, along with a heap of pamphlets and my inpatient discharge summary. Apparently I'd suffered a left MCA infarct, presenting with sudden onset of right-sided weakness. There was right facial weakness and slurred speech. The summary went on to give the results of my MRI scan. Acute left MCA territory infarct, involving corona radiata and lentiform nucleus. I thought so. I ate a very nice lunch of fish and chips, but having sat for a long time I felt dizzy, and I was lying down when the ambulance arrived. Two other passengers were with me, and soon after they'd been dropped off, I was home. With assistance, I slowly climbed the steps to the front door, and Caroline was there to meet me. Using my left hand on the opposing banister, I was helped up to the spare bedroom, and I then slumped, exhausted, onto the bed. Much later, I had a change of clothes. Caroline brought an Indian meal upstairs, and we ate together. We pretended the spare room was an Indian restaurant. We wondered what the future would bring. My name is Rachel Atkins. I've known Stephen Critchlow, or Critch, as we always refer to him, for about oh, it's over 20 years. We met through radio, doing radio dramas together, laughing and pissing around a lot, I suppose, and then going out drinking. Whenever you saw Critch's name on the script, you knew that you'd have a, <laughs> you'd have a laugh during recording. That's my overriding memory of working with him, just laughing. I remember I was taking a sip of water. We were in the green room and he made me laugh so much I spat water in his face. He has never forgotten that. I didn't do it on purpose. I was supposed to be working with Critch January 2020 before all this hideous coronavirus. We were doing Sherlock Holmes at Audible. Another actor turned to me and said, have you heard Critch has had a stroke? Which was incredibly shocking. Even though the last time I'd worked with him, he had to climb some stairs and he was deeply out of breath. And I thought, oh, that's not looking good. I texted him as soon as I heard. He was in the hospital in Northampton and he texted me straight back. So I thought, oh, good, at least he's not completely out of it. And there was still a lot of humour there. I managed to speak to him a couple of days later. And again, very, very good humoured, very deferential to the doctor. He said, I've got to go because the doctor... Hello, doctor. He's worked so hard and kept his spirits up. That's what his wife, Caroline, said was so amazing about him, that he's been positive and that positivity must help you. My God. My mother had a stroke three years ago. She wasn't found quickly like Critch was. That was the thing in the back of my head when I heard that he'd been found at the theatre and there were people round him. I thought, good, at least I'll get him to the hospital straight away and he can be looked at. My mother was on her own for two or three days and the stroke was awful but I knew that Critch had age on his side 
his wit is still very much there. He's an extraordinary man and he will do it. He'll be back to full recovery, I have absolutely no doubt. And we will be back in studio laughing again. He's a brilliant bloke. I love you lots, Critch. Six weeks on, my balance has returned and I'm walking the Labrador in the park again, but without the offensive mutterings. My speech is very nearly right, just a tiny bit sticky. And my face has almost returned to normal, but it was never very symmetrical anyway. My mouth muscles feel a bit tight. Caroline and I have taken to reading to each other at night. Reading aloud has helped me enormously. I still get very tired after lunch and slightly spaced out if I stand for too long, though nothing like as bad as before. My right arm continues to be very weak, but now I can raise it up, clench my fist and move it from side to side. This has been made possible by the combined efforts of my therapists, Jamila and Aoife, who come along and crack the whip once a week. I've also had amazing support from my friends and family, particularly Caroline, whose patience and love can't be measured. Plus, I've received more cards than I ever get on my birthday, that's November the 22nd, in case you were wondering, and at Christmas put together. So many cards, in fact, that we've created a stroke shrine above the fireplace. I've started a course of acupuncture in Blackheath, and my brother-in-law, who's a GP, very kindly brought me a TENS, Transcutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation Machine. This looks like a very early mobile phone, and is mainly used by women in pregnancy and people with muscle pain. It also has a setting for muscle re-education, so once a day I attach electrodes to my arm and shoot electrical impulses through it. Of course, putting my clothes on and washing myself with only one arm is very frustrating. But I don't have to ask Caroline for help, and things could have been a lot worse. If the experience has taught me anything, it's to appreciate my friends, family, and all those people who work for the NHS, not least those low-skilled workers, as the government calls them, who are from every part of the globe, and who work hard to care for us when we can't care for ourselves. The humour and the humanity I met on those wards will stay with me, I think. They have to form instant and intimate relationships with their patients. For us, it's a major event in our lives. For them, another day at work. I now eat sensibly, don't drink or smoke, and I don't miss those old habits. I know the damage they can cause. I'm getting a little better all the time, and I want to keep it that way. Thank you for your indulgence, dear listener. Keep smiling. Laughter's the best medicine. Unless you had a stroke, in which case it's Ramapril. Look after yourself. Thanks to the wonderful work of the various disparate parts of our unique National Health Service in two different areas of the country, Stephen is now safely back at home and well on the way to a full recovery. It's easy to overlook just how lucky we are in the UK to have the NHS, and equally easy to criticise when procedures take a long time or go wrong. But I'm sure, like Stephen and like me, 
you too have experienced the very best of NHS treatment and its dedicated staff during the course of your life. If you would like to help, Stephen is asking for donations to the Combined NHS Charities Together Fund through the Just Giving website. It's easy to donate, secure, and you can be assured that every penny you donate goes directly to the cause. Go to justgiving.com slash fundraising slash at the first stroke. That's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash at the first stroke. And donate whatever you feel you can afford. On behalf of Stephen Critchlow, myself, David Holt, and our wonderful NHS, sincerely, thank you.